Your Bird Story podcast. This is Your Bird Story, a podcast about everyday people's experiences and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Siemens. So I'm so excited, folks, to have the person that I'm going to be speaking to in mere moments on today. Hello, Dimple. Hi, how are you, Georgia? I'm very good. I'm, I can't express how happy I am to have you on your bird story. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, my name's Dimple. I am uh, a New York City public school teacher and I live in New York State. I am a wife and a mom and a daughter and um, I love nature and I love that I'm here to talk to you about birds. Great. Um, so we've had several conversations sort of giddy conversations about birds and you've shared great photos with me and so I'd love to hear about how you started noticing birds. Such an interesting question about noticing birds and I think it's just from my childhood. My my parents would always feed the birds on our deck and um, my dad would just always like he'd look, look out the window, he'd admire them, he'd describe them to me and so um, that's how I really got my interest just like looking at the birds out of the window, even if they were just, you know, typical birds like sparrows or even like the the juncos, pigeons as well. Um, that's how I got my interest. My parents buy these 25 or 20 pound bags and like we lug them into our house and they just like feed the birds three times a day, actually, oh, wow. um, since my childhood to now. And so that's like where it all started. Do you also feed the birds um, where you live with seed? Yes, we do. Um, recently, our deck is covered with snow. And so we've been really, um, we've been slacking there, but we do feed the birds. So you've been like basically a bird watcher since childhood then? Yeah, my parents had a national, my dad had this National Geographic bird book, and it was like really old. And I actually have it downstairs. It's from like the, the late 80s. Um, and so I'd use it as like a reference to like look up birds if I didn't know their names. Um, but I didn't really have any other way of like, you know, understanding or learning about like which these birds were unless I went to the library and got books out. Um, but yeah, since childhood, I got really into just looking at them and learning about them. Are there other ways that you figure out what the birds are that you're seeing? Yeah. So now as like an adult, there's all these apps on my phone. So I have like the Audubon app on my phone. And I also you know, take a lot of pictures of birds that I see. And I just like Google to see like, what is this bird called? What is that bird called? Like recently, um, since we've been, you know, on lockdown this whole 11, these 11 months, I've been able to, you know, see a lot more different types of birds throughout the day. Um, and now I know like what a titmouse bird is. I know like the different types of woodpeckers that I had no idea about. But yeah, the internet's an amazing research tool for figuring out the types of birds these are. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you mentioned the different types of woodpeckers. Which ones are you seeing? So I'm seeing um, one that's the spotted, it's white with black spots. And then um, there's like a red head. Oh, well, there's the red bellied, but it has a red head. Yes, the red bellied <laughs> one. There's Yes, I've seen that one, the red bellied. And then there's one that has black spots. Like I can't remember the name of it. Is I it a downy I... woodpecker? Yes, a downy woodpecker. 
Yeah. yeah. I'm really not good with the names unless they're ones I've seen like a lot, like the blank juncos. Those are like here all the time. Um, the little sparrows are here all the time. The chickadees, you know, like those birds, like I see them all the time. And like the, you know, cardinals, blue jays, those yeah. are in now. And the morning doves. Oh, the morning doves. Oh. Yeah. They're so beautiful. They are so beautiful. I don't and think they're they cool. Yeah, I don't think they get the appreciation that, you know, they're just really like beautiful birds and gentle and I don't know. Why do you think they're not as appreciated as they should be? I think maybe because they're not so colorful. Hmm. I don't know. And that could just be an assumption that I'm making. Um, but I guess in a way they could sim be similar to pigeons. And some, I've heard many negative things about pigeons in New York City, but um, I do admire pigeons, especially when you see like the ones that look very different from their whole group. I really enjoy seeing like there's like a white one or it's like shiny and the other ones are all gray, right? So I like finding like the unique ones and their little, you know, bird crew. That's true. Pigeons do have a bad rap in cities. But gosh, when the sun hits their um, chest and those feathers almost like sparkle, I don't know how you could have like bad feelings about them. I know. And I love like hearing their wings. Like if they, they come in groups at my parents' house, I think my dad counted once like 20 of them. So they're like on the roof of the house and then all at once they like fly down to the deck and they're trying to just like get all their seeds. And then if they hear any noise, they all like, you know, flutter away. You can hear their wings. <laughs> um, I could see that being a little bit intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite of all these birds? I don't know. When, as a child, I really loved cardinals and blue jays. I just like loved blue jays. They were just so beautiful. I think like the blue was beautiful. Their noise, like their, their squawking was kind of annoying at times, like because they make their presence very known um, just by, I guess, their noise. <laughs> like the caw, caw. Like they're so loud when they arrive, I guess, to our, our, our deck. Um, but I used to love those. And then blue jays, I mean, then cardinals. I just loved cardinals. And I loved how like the male and female were different. Like growing up, I didn't realize my dad would share, like, you know, he'd say like the, the male was the bright red one. And then um, the duller color was the female, but the female is also very stunning with like her orange beak. I have to tell you, I heard geese the other night at like 1245 at night. 1245? At night. Were you awake or did they wake you up? I was awake. But it was very interesting. I heard that they like, um, some of them travel at night. Mm. No idea. Yeah. Uh, were you able to see, was it a moonlit night? Could you see them or only hear them? I could only hear them. I was in this room actually. And we have like a creek in the backyard and I just heard geese and I was like, oh no, something's like attacking the geese or, you know, outside that are sleeping. Um, and then I heard so many and it just sounded like they were flying away. Like at first I thought they, they were being attacked or something, but they were flying away. And then I, I used Google, my friend Google to see, you know, geese at night. <laughs> and, um, people were saying that sometimes they travel at night during the winter. That was only like one of the first two things I read. So hopefully it's accurate. Um, but it reminded me of my turkeys <laughs> that oh. frequently, um, cause I was wondering if, you know, geese actually, you know, roost like turkeys do mm. um, I've never seen them I mean the geese are not here often I just I hear them I don't usually see them yeah I don't know that much about geese that would be interesting to find out if they roost oh and I want to come back to your turkeys but I want to say it's really fascinating when you think about um 
there's so many birds that migrate at night. I mean, raptors are on the move during the day, but all, you know, songbirds migrate at night and ornithologists use radar and you can track their movements. And so there's a really fabulous website. If you search bird radar and during the spring and fall migration season, they give you um, bird movement forecasts because you can see these bands of birds moving like up from Central and South America into North America. So just think about when you're sleeping at night in the spring and the fall, there are birds flying overhead. (laughs) That's amazing. I think that's just amazing. Like even like the other night hearing them, and my first thing was fear because I fear for the animals outside. Because I, I mean, I just grew up loving, you know, and appreciating nature and life, I guess, um, aside from human life. And so I was like, oh, no, there's like a fox or something getting at these birds. And um, they're like trying to protect them by like, you know, squawking. Um, but then after I looked it up, I was like, oh, they're all just like going together and they're flying in the sky and they're like, you know, V-shape. <laughs> yeah, That's what I often see in the sky. The geese are often flying too high for my binoculars to sort of even identify what type of geese. And I'm not an experienced enough birder to use other cues to narrow it down to species, but the V formation, I'm like, oh, well, I can tell what that is. <laughs> I know. Exactly. So tell us about your turkeys. Oh, the turkeys. Um, so we moved upstate just like about 50 miles outside of New York City. Um, and I still commute into the city. And so we just noticed turkeys in our backyard, like wild turkeys. They appeared, they come actually every season. And so it's like they come in the winter, the spring, the summer, the fall. Um, there's about 17 of them this year. Um, and they're just very beautiful. They're not like the turkeys you see at Thanksgiving, I guess. And I never realized what turkeys really look like because um, I'm a Hindu and Hindus don't eat meat. So I don't eat turkey. And so I I just know like the stereotypical image of a, a turkey with the, you know, the um, wings all the way up or like the feathers in the back up and things like that. But we have these beautiful turkeys. They're, they're brown, they're large. Um, they come right up to our deck and they love bird seeds. Um, <laughs> they love bird seeds and they also like berries because I did toss out a lot of berries that we had. And so um, they were there when berries were on our grass. Um, but one thing recently that was cool this summer, maybe it was this fall, we saw them getting ready to roost. And I didn't even know what roosting was. My husband had to tell me about that. Um, it's like when the birds are getting ready or when they go into the trees and they go to sleep and they don't always roost in the same spot is something that we we looked up and researched. Um, and so they were roosting in our backyard. And so we were trying to figure out what time they were doing that. And we realized it was really close to sunset. We like narrowed it down to like a 10 minute frame in a week to figure out like when these turkeys were going to roost. And um, we'd like get ready near our deck. And um, this one time, I think I was actually, I, I texted you afterwards or I texted you the next day or we spoke. They were all lined up on um, in our backyard, like in a row, like they were just lined up and they're equally spaced. And they were like taking off like an airplane would take off and they would take turns like one would go up right and then you'd see it get onto a, um, a tree and then another one would immediately go up and they just take turns going up and up and they also had um, one or two turkeys that were just like watching out like one was sitting on our, our gate looking at all of them you know go up and another one was on our deck um, but it was a really cool experience to see them all um, take off and find a tree 
when they were in a tree, they would like adjust and then some would like hop from one branch to another and then some branches of the trees would like fall. And then we like waited until the sunset and it was like, it was getting pretty dark, but we could see like their, their blob, their body on the branches, like all over. And we could count to see how many we could, you know, find. Uh, my daughter really loved it. It was such a cool experience. I, I never knew turkeys roosted. I never knew birds could live in trees like that. Like it was just a really cool um, thing that we got to watch and see and learn about. It also got my daughter to be really, really into birds. So like she, she's obsessed with our turkeys. We call them our turkeys. <laughs> they're obviously not our turkeys. But when we do like spot them, like we know if they're like far away, we can open our deck door and like toss like uh, an old yogurt container of bird seeds um, outside because we, we like to reuse and recycle. And they're not like scared of that. It's usually if you see like one or two and we're like, okay, we have like 30 seconds to like get something out there before they like fly away. And so it's just pretty amazing to see like how close nature can get to us and like the different things that we can see. And I, I never had an opportunity like that. And I probably never would have, I was living in New York City still. Um, but in New York City, I had my own, you know, um, pigeon experiences, which are pretty special. Staying on the turkeys for a little bit, and then I want to hear about the New York City pigeon stories. So you've said you've seen these turkeys multiple times, so over several seasons. Do you feel like you know individual turkeys? I don't think we know individual turkeys. Um, we do know that there was a mommy turkey, and then she had six little ones. Um, and so I can't remember when it was, but it was in the past 11 months of <laughs> lockdown that we noticed that one was a mommy and then there were some that were growing. And I don't know if it's from the same group of the 17, um, because she would only come by herself with her little babies, I'd call them, but they got older and they got larger and stuff. So like, we can tell that that was like the mommy and her, her, um, I don't know what the baby birds are called, baby turkeys. Um, but other than that, we can't really tell what I can tell is like there are two or three males and most of them, the rest of them look like they were females. There was one time I was driving to our house and I saw the turkeys and I stopped and like the male like took up, he got all puffy and his, I don't even know what it's called. Like when they bring up those feathers in the back to get big and he started walking to the car. Um, so I know like the two or three males, they look very uh, unique. Like they, these three had like red around their chin and they were shiny. Like there were three birds that look pretty similar but I don't know if they're like the same ones. Wow, very territorial male. Yeah, he was like, he was like, move away. <laughs> and I'm like, you're going to my house. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I know. Um, what do you think, what about the turkeys um, that night do you think made your daughter, made it sort of magical for your daughter? There were so many of them. I think that was it. Um, and they didn't all fly away at once. Cause this is like, they were, they were in a formation to like get ready to, I guess, find a spot to, you know, spend the night. Um, I think it, it was also like, it was like sunset. Like it was all very, I can't describe it. It's awesome. Right. Like my dad was even here. We had invited him and we we're like, you have to come during this week. You need to see these turkeys go up. We have it down to like the 10 minutes that we know they, they could be going into the trees. <laughs> Um, so it was kind of like we were all waiting for this to happen like every day. Um, but this one day was just so unique um, because there were so many in the backyard all lined up specifically to like go into the trees. Um, 
And then after they all got into the trees, we all spent more time in our front yard, like looking out to be like, where are they all? And it was just so awesome and amazing to see them. Right. And then to see them adjust. And then it just got like too dark and we we're like, bye bye turkeys. Good night. Um, and it was just really special. And, and she loves birds now. Like she loves birds. She really wanted binoculars and we never even like thought about buying them, which is very interesting because we just like looking at them out our window. And so um, she has her own binoculars. We do too. Um, but there's still some kind of joy about like seeing them so close to our windows while they're eating or like in the trees. Um, hopefully this summer we can get, get used to using the binoculars. Yeah. Uh, do you know what her favorite bird is? I think it's the cardinal. Okay. Yeah. There's only, there seems to be only one male cardinal and one female cardinal that come to our backyard. We haven't seen more than that. Um, and so it's like really, it's really special when they do come. At my parents' house, she's seen more than one, one more than one male. And so she's like, oh my God, the red birds are here. And she knows their names. It's awesome. It's so cool. Yeah. Like I didn't know them all at, you know, five and a half. Yeah. I learned names much later. Well, it seems like she has a good mentor. I'm learning. It's, it's so, it's so great just to learn about like other creatures and, um, and this, like, I don't know, I think it's like this interest in birds has like always been there. And I think now because we've been home for so long, it's just like really wonderful to have the opportunity to just like look outside or even like bring our laptop outside when it's not, you know, cold and just like listen to the birds. Cause that's also really great. I've taught like in the springtime I was teaching my, you know, classes online and I'd sit on my deck and they could hear the birds. Like the kids could hear the birds and they like loved it. Oh, so it's really, oh my gosh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. When my dad and pa- when my mom and dad come, they like sit out on the deck and they like drink their tea and, or their chai. Um, and they listen to the birds. It's wonderful. Even if we feed the birds, they'd like come around and still like, you know, hang out while they're out there. Yeah. Do you think you're learning to identify the different birds by the sounds they make? I'm trying. I think this summer I was trying to like record the sounds to get an idea of like what bird was making specific sounds. And we had a lot of woodpeckers in the summer. Um, If I were to listen now, I wouldn't be able to tell, but there are some that I know from like childhood. Like I know like the morning dove and their coos. Um, I know the cardinal, the blue jays. Um, What are other common ones I'm trying to think about? Oh, the chickadee. I know the chickadee. It's so common. Um, I haven't seen so many here upstate where we're currently living, but my parents live in Binghamton and like, you can hear the chickadees, you know, that they're outside. You can hear their, you know, song. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's good when you're, uh, when your name matches or the name that humans have given you match the sound that you make. Yeah. It's easy for humans. (laughs) So moving Outside of where you are now to New York City, you were telling us that you had some special pigeon experiences and I wanted yeah. to share those or at least a couple of them. I mean, I think it's really, I had some pigeon friends I would see every single day. Um, and so this is like my first year I moved to New York. I lived on the Upper East Side and I was student teaching um, in the Lower East Side and I'd walk to the train at seven in the morning and um, there was always this group or crew of pigeons I'd see. And I'd always say hello to them. And um, there was this one unique pigeon, a white one that was with brown on it and brown spots. And I just felt like they knew me. I was like new to New York City and they're like my new friends. And I'd be like, hi guys, going to work today. And I I felt like we had an interesting connection. Um, But I also, (laughs) I feel like that was it. Every single day I'd see these pigeons. Unfortunately, I didn't have anything to feed them and I wouldn't feed them anything. Um, But they were my special New York City friends before, you know, 
I got to know real people. <laughs> and that's just very interesting though. Cause I think that like moving from, you know, Binghamton, New York to New York city, there's not much, I mean, living on the upper side, there were just like buildings and roads. And like, I feel like these pigeons were just like part of nature. I could see it. I was like, Oh, this is familiar. I like it. Other than that, I don't think I have too many. If I do see any birds or things around me, I do acknowledge their presence. I think there's a connection that we have with other creatures. And I think it could just be me being a Hindu person. And in Hinduism, you see that everyone has a piece of that um, life energy or life source in them. Every animal, every plant, you know, so like every bird, every sort of creature has that. And so I just really value um, the life of the bird. I value the life of any creature. I think one thing so special about birds is that they can travel right and they can just fly and they're like above everyone and they can see down and it's it's just really different I think yeah there's something special about that ability to fly and it's one that humans wanted to acquire like we wanted to have that ability for a really long time right so we make machines <laughs> no that's true I'm a big advocate for you know people like hate pigeons in New York City I'm just like no they're not dirty they're not gross they're not rats with wings <laughs> so I'm like that person that's like no don't talk about them like that when you say that you acknowledge the life force in other organisms is there something specific that you do when you encounter an animal or is it just like a gesture that you make or something you think about when you make eye contact? I don't know if there's anything specific. I just, um, there's like an acknowledgement. I think they're, they're a being. I think it's like the same when I see like squirrels on the deck, right? Like I acknowledge they're there. I'm like, hey guys, it's time to eat. Like I could be that person, right? But I, I feel like there's an acknowledgement and a respect that I, I give to animals or creatures. And I think um, it's not necessarily understood by all, but I think that's something I was raised to believe. And as an adult, even though I was raised to believe, I truly do believe that. And I try to, you know, have my daughter also see that you know, other creatures should be treated a certain way and given, you know, respect and care and love and things like that. And so I think that we appreciate the birds by, you know, giving them seeds constantly throughout the day and just like, you know, giving them their space. I don't, you know, we've loved birds so much. Like we never, ever thought about getting bird as a pet, right? Like my parents never thought of that, like, cause that would just be, we're caging them. They're not creatures that should be caged, right? They should yeah. be free. But I think that's a really interesting question. You know, there's this movement now among non-Indigenous folks in the U.S. to give land acknowledgments and sort of talk about the Native presence historically and sort of the current Native presence. And there's even a movement, and it's mostly coming out of the Indigenous community, about non-human rights and how important it is to acknowledge, as you say, the life force in other organisms that humans are not the sort of dominant or shouldn't be, shouldn't think of themselves as the dominant creature on the earth, that we share this place with, with other lives. So it's nice to hear you articulate it because I think lots of people don't. And maybe if it was more front of mind, we we might be in a different place environmentally. It's so true. So I have an insight because I know that not only do you 
seabirds in your yard, but you also go to a nearby park to look at. Oh, we went to a creek. Yes. So the other day we were just coming back from um, the store, I think, or we, oh, you know what? We went to go buy a snowblower and we were driving home and um, Asha and I walk by this creek really often. And, um, and so we were driving by and I looked out the window and I just always look out there to see like, are the ducks there? Cause there's ducks there all the time. Um, the ones with the green shiny, are they mallard ducks? Yeah, I think they're mallard ducks. And so I looked there and I was like, oh my gosh, the ducks are there. And then I was like, oh my gosh. And we had already driven by and um, I had to reverse the car. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a blue heron. And I had to get everyone. I told my husband, I was like, look, there's a blue heron. And like my daughter got out of her car seat and we like had the window down. And we're like, there it is. Um, it was really shocking. And this is interesting because this, this, this is the third time we've seen a blue heron. And so we actually didn't even know it was that. We like Googled bird, bluish bird with like long legs, looks like a stork or something. Um, And so the first time we saw it was like the third day we moved into our house. It was on our front yard. Um, And and so that was our first time. But this third time we saw it was, um, it was in the creek with the ducks. And um, I sent you a picture. It was just really beautiful and still and stoic. And um, I think it was eating little things in the water um, and it was having um, there was some sort of relationship it had with the ducks because um, at one point they were all very close together and just like putting their heads in the water and just like walking around, not walking around, but the blue heron was walking around, but the ducks were like swimming around. Um, so it was really interesting to see the relationship between the birds and how they're very comfortable. And it was just like natural, but yeah, we like had to stop the car and then, um, you know, uh, admire it all and then um we went on a walk the other day too and it was still over there and so it seems like it goes there often I think because um when we walked over there were three women that were also walking and I was telling them I was going to go see if this you know blue blue heron was there and they're like oh my gosh we saw it the other day and so it seems like right now like in the past few days it's been over there it's been in our backyard one time over the summer um, we have a creek and we actually saw it flying and it was just amazing. Its legs were very long and thin. And then the wingspan is so large um, and it was going so fast. We couldn't take a picture, but um, it was just really beautiful. And they go, I mean, I can't, I don't know if it was he or she, but it went up into the air so fast and it like traveled. Like it was just really amazing to see how fast it got up in a way. Um, yeah. For such a large cool. bird, it's quite graceful. Yeah. It was. I actually thought I would be able to get a picture. And I was like, you know what? We've we've kind of accepted that, like, we're going to see, like, birds and things like that. And we're not going to be able to snap a pic all the time. (laughs) Um, But when we do, it's pretty cool. We saw an owl uh, one evening, too. And I think I sent you the picture of it. Um, And we'd never seen an owl before. I still haven't. And it, like, flew up into a tree. And it was really blurry. But we're like, that's an owl. We've never seen an owl. Um, and it, we only knew it was because of the eyes. And then that was like the unique feature of it and like the shape of it. It sounds like you live in a great bird place. I'm just thinking about the diversity of birds that you've seen just from your yard. And I mean, you said you're only 50 miles outside of the city, which in the Northeast is not that great of a distance. So it's like lovely to be so close into the city um but yet you can see 
this diversity of birds without going that far out. Yeah, that's so true. And I actually miss being, I miss not going to like Central Park, right? And like admiring the birds there. I think that is something I do wish I got to do. And I can, you know, try doing that in the future um, because I know that's like a big place that people, you know, bird watch. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully I can do that. I think my project this summer is to like listen to the sounds. Like that's what one of my goals. Yeah. You know, I, um, we got an Alexa and I haven't done this yet, but you can ask Alexa to play any bird vocalization for you. Wow. That's really cool. I'm going to do that. Cause um, I've only been using the Audubon app this summer and I, I didn't know what I should be doing. And so I was just like listening to the bird sounds, but I'm definitely going to use the Alexa app because I have it on my phone. Thank you for the tip. There are many downsides to technology, but it does have really great upsides in terms of education. It's great. I mean, it's something that a lot of people have access to, whether you have something in your home like that, or you have a smartphone. And so to be able to bring that knowledge with you um, and use it easily is really wonderful. I have a couple more questions for you, Dimple. One is, do you keep a list of your birds on paper or you just, it's a mental list? It's a mental list. I do have a new, we have a new bird book that has more pictures in it. And so my daughter can use it as reference. And so um, I only have a few post-its on the pages of birds we've seen, but I think that's a great idea to actually create a list. And I'd most likely do it on paper because I'm still a paper person. For sure. Are there birds that you want to see this year? Hmm. I want to see a yellow bird. Do I know what name is? No. But this summer, this past summer, I swear I saw a bird with yellow feathers and I don't know what it is. I, I didn't have time to Google enough to figure out what it could have been, but I do want to see a yellow bird at one point. Was it a small bird? It was small. It was small, just like the little sparrows are small and the juncos are small, like the same kind of size. And then I was like, was it yellow? Was it a flower? I mean, it was in our backyard <laughs> in a tree. I couldn't tell, but my goal is to see one of those. Maybe it was a yellow warbler. Oh, it could have been a warbler. Yeah. Yeah, I want to see something like that. Other than that, when I was on the highway driving in New Jersey, I, I swear I saw a bald eagle. It was like New Jersey, New York. I swear I saw one. Um, so that was pretty cool. I've seen like the hawks and the vultures and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think I totally just want to see like a unique kind of, you know, yellow bird. <laughs> it's so <laughs> quirky and weird and stuff like that. That's a good goal bird. For folks who are just starting out on this journey of paying attention to birds where they are, do you have any tips, advice? Yeah, I think like one of the things is like if you want to look at birds, one thing we used to do is either sit by the window or sit on the deck really quietly after you feed them, like if you put out seeds and just like watch. Like I think that's what we did was just like, I feel like we just look out the window a lot or if we're outside, we try to just stay quiet and still and then they come out. But I also think just like appreciating anything, like look around and maybe you'll, you'll, you'll see something that you didn't notice before. Because oftentimes they can blend in. Specific types of birds can just like blend in if they're sitting mm. in a tree, right? And also if you just think like a, it's like a plain, boring, tiny bird, they're so unique in, in itself. Like look at them closer. I feel like if you just like 
pay a little more attention to like what they look like and the details and like their beaks or their eyes or their feathers or, you know, things like that. There's so much there. And drilling down a little bit more on that question as a parent of a child who is really excited about bird watching, what advice would you give to other parents with to either encourage their children to pay attention to birds or to support their child's, you know, interest in birds? So one of the first things we did was buy um, bird books, like little board books with birds on them. And so like this bird is red, it's a cardinal. And so I feel like we started pretty early with that. And then um, the second thing is that we'd feed the birds. And so she really likes that. And then the third part was just like looking at the birds and identifying them. She really liked knowing their names, right? And so she's like, that's a cardinal. I see the cardinal. The cardinals are out. The blue jays here. And then she'd count them too. Like, so at my parents' house, there's like six or seven blue jays that come at once. And so she'd count them. She's like, there's only six are here today. Um, And so like that kind of stuff really helped her. And then um, this summer when we were outside a lot and if we saw birds, we'd have to be really quiet. And so like she'd tiptoe and like we'd do stuff like that. Like she'd tiptoe quietly and then like she'd be like, I see this color and this thing. And then we'd go look in our book. Can we figure out what this bird's called and stuff like that? Um, And then she also got her binoculars this summer, which was like something really cool. Yeah. but there are so many things. I think counting birds became really fun over the summer. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're definitely raising a birder, it sounds like. Yeah, she really likes them. She also likes cats, too. So like, <laughs> we have to outweigh that. Yeah. I mean, growing, up, <laughs> growing up, we had a cat. And my our cat actually did catch a bird once. And that was, um, we weren't very okay with that. <laughs> He came home with the blue jay in his mouth and my dad had to like whack his head and then like the blue jay flew out of our dining room outside. Um, but that, <laughs> um, it's very interesting. We're okay with like mother nature, but you know, we don't need our cat bringing home a bird to us. <laughs> no, and I love cats. I mean, you know, we live in the city, so our cats don't go outside. Um, but I think if we lived outside the city, we would definitely have indoor cats. Yeah, definitely. Of, I mean, the research just shows. They kill everything. They yeah. kill all the rodents. All, you know, no, I totally get it. Ours like, had run out. <laughs> so, no, we keep these guys in, our cats right now. We keep them in. They totally want to come outside, but, you know, they enjoy watching the birds. They, 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 just, they love it. Yeah. It's entertaining. Uh, yeah, there's like an sort of that evolutionary impulse to to hunt you know and then they hit their heads against the glass and we're like oh sorry kitty (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we could talk for much longer about this and I know we'll continue our conversation about birds offline is there anything you'd like to share before we wrap up no I think this is such a cool experience I think um I love that you have this podcast appreciating bird stories from, you know, regular people who like watch birds. I love it. And I hope it continues. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, Thanks for accepting the invitation. And I loved hearing the backstory to the heron and of course the turkeys. I mean, I would love to live in a place where turkeys roost (laughs) in the trees in my yard. Yeah. Well, Dimple, thanks again. Thank you so much.
Welcome to Stories About Big Birds. I'm in a Zoom room with Laura. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Laura Goggin. I live in New York City, um, originally from the West Coast, Oregon, but I didn't get interested in birds until actually I came to the city. Was there a particular species that got you interested? Um, yeah, the one that did it and the one that people probably know me for is the red-tailed hawk. I w- walked into Tompkins Square Park in East Village one afternoon and there was a hawk very low in a tree eating a rat and I had just never seen that before up so close. It was maybe 10 or 15 feet away from me and it was just in the middle of the city. There were people all around, there were dogs, there were kids and it was just a stunning <laughs> and unexpected um, occurrence and that just that got me hooked and that opened up the world of, of birds and wildlife for me. Were you the only person at that point who noticed the hawk eating the rat? Oh no, um, there were a lot of people there before me. There, there was a, a crowd. He had quite an audience. And at that point, were you, you know, when you came back the next time, did you come back with binoculars? Did you come back with a camera? Um, I didn't have binoculars at the time. I did have a camera um, because I, I was doing photography. I was into street photography. Uh, I walked all over the city taking pictures. I was really interested in kind of abandoned areas and empty streets, that sort of thing. So I had a little point and shoot. And back then, you know, camera digital technology wasn't that advanced. So I think it was a a five time zoom camera. So <laughs> if I've got all my pictures online, if you go back into the archives and look at those, those original bird pictures, they're pretty bad, but you can, you can tell that uh, what I was trying to do. And I was very interested in the Hawks kind of made it easy because they were, they would get close and they were big and um, you know, they would sit still. Hmm. So, or sit in a window, something like that. So it was a, a good way to get into wildlife photography. Did you find that you were then chasing other red-tailed hawks around the city or did you really focus in on the ones in Tompkins? Good question. There were, at the time, I don't remember the time of year. It might've been the fall. So I think raptor migration had probably begun. So there were several hawks in Tompkins Square. And I know I was pretty, pretty lucky at finding them easily whenever I went to the park. Of course, I knew about Pale Mail up in Central Park, and I probably went up there to look for him a few times, but I had no idea where to look, and Central Park was so big, and mm-hmm. Tompkins were so small, and it was just, and as winter uh, progressed and the leaves came off the trees, you could walk into the park and see across the whole park, and a, a big hawk was easy to spot, so I was pretty spoiled <laughs> in the beginning because it was they made it very easy easy for me to find them. So I think I st- I stayed around in the neighborhood or around Tompkins for for quite a while before I started exploring you know, other areas. One of the reasons that we wanted to speak with you uh, is because you've had an experience with a very big bird. This particular bird is. Um, a protagonist in a fairy tale. And I think there's a line in a holiday song about this bird. And if you are familiar with the Boston area and you go to the public garden, you've probably ridden on a mechanized version of this bird. So if folks 
I haven't clued in yet. It's about a swan. And I'm really excited to hear about your experiences with swans. Yeah, swan. I mean, that's probably the largest bird I've ever encountered outside of an ostrich, which was probably in a, in a, a zoo or in captivity. This happened when I was in college very long time ago <laughs> in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. Um, they have a park in the middle of town, Pioneer Park. And it was actually designed by the same people who designed Central Park. So it's like a very a miniature Central Park. It's, it's really beautiful. There's a pond and they have an aviary. And in the aviary, they had exotic birds and um, different chickens. And at the time, I didn't really know anything about birds. Um, I was aware of them. I knew they were around, but I kind of took them for granted and didn't know really anything about birds. So I was with a friend and we went to the aviary. Um, this friend was actually interested in birds and he um, you know, grew up on a farm and raised exotic chickens. So he went to see the, the chickens that were there. And the um, birds were kept in little, um, not cages, but little enclosures with um with chicken wire. And then there was a, a large area that was enclosed by a cyclone fence. And I think there was some, uh, there was a pond in there as well as some grass. And as we walked by, I was just chatting with my friend, wasn't really paying attention. I heard a commotion and turned and inside that enclosure. I saw the swan, this giant white bird, <laughs> which was maybe a hundred feet away but it was coming quickly towards us. It was flying or it was kind of running on the water. And it was, it looked like it was heading right for us. It was um, making a lot of noise. It seemed to be very angry. And all I could do was just stand there kind of stunned, like it's coming straight for us. But we had this fence, a cyclone fence in between us and we thought we were safe. And I thought the bird would slow down or stop, but it didn't, it just flew. <laughs> it kept getting coming at us you know, faster and faster and it's getting bigger and bigger as it's getting closer. And eventually it, it slammed into the fence and its head went through the hole of the cyclone fence. And I couldn't believe it. It was this giant bird with a big body on one side of the fence and its little head coming through the hole. And it was just screaming angrily. And I, I couldn't believe it. It was almost like it didn't even realize it was in the fence. It was mm -hmm. so distraught. And it was angry at us. And I couldn't understand what we had done to cause this bird to be so angry. And um, it was really just, I realized, just our very existence. We were in its, near its territory. I don't remember if it had chicks. It may have. But it just saw us and didn't want us there. Purely because we were humans and we were in its space. And I had never had an encounter like this before, but I think about it a lot because even though, you know, we didn't have any bad intentions and we were minding our own business, we weren't hurting anything. Still, this bird didn't like us being there and it was a problem. And uh, our presence clearly upset mm -hmm. the bird. It, it did extract its head from the fence. It was okay. Okay. <laughs> but it was, it was terrifying. I mean, that it, it was it was very violent, the force of it flying into the fence and what it was willing, what it was willing to do. If that fence hadn't been there, you know, it would have 
you know, probably bit us or slammed into us. But the fact that it was willing to risk itself, mm. risk getting hurt like that to just to get us out of the area was really um, something that stuck with me ever since. So when I look at animals and birds now, you know, just, you know, I have to think about how close am I, is me, is my looking at them disturbing them, is my being here disturbing them, even though, you know, I'm, I'm not intending any harm, maybe I want to take a picture, maybe I want to, you know, look, get a closer look at the bird. Um, it's always in the back of my mind, that swan, and, you know, when is too close, you know, when is it too close or when is just being, being present, a stress on the bird. So an upsetting story, I think Connecticut, maybe uh, some jet skiers had been getting too close to a nesting swan. The swan was very famous where he lived. He's been there a long, long time um, and everybody knew about him. But, you know, people were getting too close. He was getting agitated, being a swan. He was very aggressive. And I think he may have bit, bit somebody or gone after them. And so the people who were attacked, I guess, complained. And then the you know, the decision was made to euthanize the swan for what happened. And that didn't happen. I, th- I can't, I would have to look up the story. Somebody mm-hmm. came to its rescue and decided to take it in on their, and keep it on their property. That's which great. also was a little upsetting because they did take the swan away from his, his territory and his family. I think it's easy to, uh, blame birds for their aggressive behavior. I hear a lot of uh, stories about, you know, aggressive magpies and red and blackbirds that, that dive at people and when they get too close to their nests, but they're doing it because they're defending their territory or their babies. And it's not personal. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, that's, oh, I hadn't heard about the swan in Connecticut. Yeah, I have to look up the details because I, I'm not positive it was Connecticut either. I have to find okay. the story. It was it was recent in the last few weeks. Yeah, it's really unfortunate the way that humans privilege their lifestyle over the lives of non-human animals. You know, this this feels really close to home because a lot of the stories you hear about where an animal will be euthanized is often in much wilder spaces, and it's usually a bear or a coyote or a wolf or a mountain lion. And to hear of a bird that a lot of folks are more familiar with and a bird in this metro area, right? It just seems really kind of close and it's not something that we should be able to ignore. It would have been so easy to curb the behavior of the jet skiers for the time when that swan is most defensive and then the swan would be able to stay in place. But um, unfortunately. I think part of the issue is, you know, we live in this urban area, so it's a very human developed area. And we kind of think perhaps that we, we own the place and we were here first, but actually, you know, we we weren't. (laughs) So when an animal like, you know, a hawk comes into the city and it seems so rare and special. Mm. Originally, I don't think that was the case. Uh, we drove out a lot of the wildlife and only with recent efforts, you know, a lot of the wildlife is, be, is able to um, return or to thrive here. And with the swan, yeah, swans are, you know, fairly common in urban areas. They're, 
you know, you see them a lot with ducks and on ponds, and, but um, but that doesn't mean they're tame or domesticated. Right. I'm curious how you or if you use your photography to sort of communicate these ethics or um, responsible ways of interacting with wildlife? Yeah, I try. Um, and in the beginning, I, I admit, you know, I'm not entirely innocent. When I first saw that hawk in the city, you know, the first thing I wanted to do is get close and take a picture. And, you know, a, a lot of people react that way because it's exciting and, you know, it's it's pretty cool to see this this bird, you know, right there, um, sitting on a bench or on a fence, you know, where it seems easily accessible. And I did eventually invest in a larger camera, a larger lens, and that isn't necessarily bring me closer to the bird. I can actually stand further away from it and get a get a picture without getting you know into the bird's space. And then I've tried. I do uh, publish the photos on a website, and there have been times when I've you know, I've encountered people who've gotten too close. Usually someone with a cell phone um, sees a hawk on the fence and wants to get really close. I've had to actually, you know, tap someone on the shoulder and say, you need to really back off. And I haven't had any problems with people not understanding that. Usually they're just caught up in the moment and then realize that, oh, okay, maybe I am too close and I don't want to you know, scare the bird or harm the bird and, and they'll back off. But um, you know, I've tried to, I mean, I have... Uh, posted a couple of little rants or lectures, I guess, about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, what concerns me more as far as the wildlife goes is our environment and what we put into it. Like um, rodenticide mm. has been a big issue with me. It kills hawks, it kills other animals. And I've, I've tried to um, bring some awareness to that issue. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, a few years ago, I mean, I had no idea that uh, any animal other than rats would eat rat poison. But in fact, any any animal can eat rat poison. And then animals that eat animals like rats that are uh, that have ingested the poison can also die from secondary poisoning. So I had a firsthand uh, experience with this. It was pretty horrible. Um, there was a pair of hawks in uh, downtown Manhattan that were starting to nest and they were um, gathering sticks and, you know, they were flying around on some buildings looking for an appropriate air conditioner to build their nest. And this went on for days and, you know, at least a two or three weeks. And people who worked in the area really enjoyed watching them, you know, go into the trees and break sticks and take them to the air conditioners and, they were catching pigeons, they were eating rats, they were just really, they were really a spectacle. And it was really kind of a wonderful experience to see these, these two hawks going about their business in the middle of people. One day, and I took a lot of pictures of them, um, and one day, one of the hawks, the female, didn't look quite right. They, were, they had been very busy trying to build their nests, and um, she suddenly was kind of lethargic, mm-hmm. and he was still collecting the the male was still collecting sticks and, and taking them around to the air conditioners. She then just sat on her branch, on a tree branch, and didn't move. And that was on, a, I saw her on my lunch hour, so I came back after work that same day. And she was in the same spot, which is not normal. Hawk uh, should have been flying around. So I stayed with her, a friend and I stayed with her for the rest of the evening. And she climbed up a tree and 
passed away. Mm. Um, this was all really just heartbreaking to see. And the male hawk seemed to be confused. He was still trying to you know, build a nest and he seemed to be puzzled why she wasn't participating. So her body was sent to the Department of Environmental Conservation. They did some testing and concluded that she had died of rodenticide poisoning. And um, it turns out there had been rat poison used in the parks in that area, as well as other property. And so she'd most likely eaten a rat that had been poisoned and then she died. I mean, it was, hor- it was a terrible, horrible experience um, watching that. So a lot of people were upset. There was a, definitely a rat problem in that area. That was why rat poison was being used. However, the Parks Department, after that incident, and I don't know if it's because of that one incident or if there's other factors involved, but they switched from using uh, rodenticide to using uh, dry ice as an experimental method of dealing with uh, rats. And they used that in Tompkins Square Park, which was a local park. And it was very successful. Uh, In Tompkins Square at the time, there there were rats everywhere. And when they used the dry ice, the rats were, were gone. It was literally overnight. So after using, I think it was Tompkins Square and Columbus Park as experimental locations for CO2, they used that the dry ice method in other parks as well. And I believe now that none of the city parks are using rodenticide. I I believe they're all using the the dry ice method, which is great, but that's just city parks. That's not private property owners. Right. The city does offer, uh, I think it's monthly rat academy programs. And right now it's all online. If you, if you Google or do a search for Rat Academy in New York, you'll find it. It's on the, I think it's on the nyc.gov website and it's run by the Department of Health and they teach you how to prevent rats and also how to deal with rats without using poison. So there is a, there is an effort being made. Yeah, that's really great. My patch, Washington Square Park, I know that the head gardener there um, applies the dry ice And um, you are right to say that while the Parks Department doesn't apply rodenticide, rats know no boundaries and uh, the birds that eat them don't observe our human boundaries either. So there's still a campaign left to get private property owners and managers not to apply rodenticide. And it's clear that there is a a non-invasive, non-lethal beyond the rat itself option. So hopefully uh, that will be taken up sooner rather than later. I do just as like a, I think the parks department still treats playgrounds with rodenticide. So. And I'm not sure about city property like NYCHA or buildings. Right. Because you can't use the dry ice in a building. It works in underground in burrows. So I'm not sure what, how they're handling up. Uh, their property with buildings. Yeah. I mean, that's a very challenging situation, right? Because you certainly don't want rats in your home and just because of the issues that they bring inside. Laura, I'm curious if you have a list of big birds that you would like to see. And if you do, what are some of the birds on that list? I am a fan of big birds, like tall birds. I think because and like the swan, um, 
if you've ever been up close to a swan, I think they're like 30 pounds, you know, they're really tall and the tall birds uh, kind of attract me because we're almost eye to eye. I'm not very tall myself. So <laughs> I love seeing herons and egrets. Um, I was fortunate to take a trip to Florida before, uh, you know, before the pandemic and um, was able to see reddish heron, which is known for its hunting, crazy hunting methods. It kind of dances around in the water and holds its wings over its bed and flaps around uh, it's it's the craziest thing and i got to watch several of those um you know dance around catching fish and i, I just never seen anything like it before and they're beautiful they're kind of gray and mauve mm. color tall i do love all the raptors seen bald eagles here in the city that was something i never expected to see but they are around i'd love to see a condor california condor yeah but, uh, I haven't been able to travel to where they are, but that's that's probably the ultimate big bird that I'd love to see. And as a final question, what's the biggest impact that birds have had on your life? They've had several. Well, the swan it certainly um, forced me to be, you know, aware of my effect on my surroundings, what my presence, uh, effect my presence has on the, the wildlife around me. But the hawks, especially the one, uh, my local hawk, I think has taught me kind of how to be present hmm. and patient, like especially living in the city where we're just moving around so much. So there's always something more important to do and someplace to go. After I saw that first hawk, I forget where I was going. I was just going to pass through the park and go off and do something, probably go to a bar and have a beer or something. But I decided <laughs> instead, I, I think I'll just stay with this bird and see what it does. And then I've, I've never left the bird. But the, the resident hawk in Tompkins Square is a, he's a, the male, he's a, he's a lesson in patience and just spending time with him and, being with him and observing him as he observes everything in his environment really kind of calms me down. It also puts things in perspective, like what is really important? Do I really need to, you know, do I really need to go have a beer right now? Or should I just, can I just stay here and enjoy this moment and enjoy where I am and enjoy what might happen while I'm here? Because of the hawks, I've you know, learned to sit still be quiet and observe and actually discover other birds, other animals. There's a lot of wildlife in the park. I knew nothing. I didn't know existed hmm. until I stopped and paid attention. And then, you know, I started exploring other parts of the city and going to places that are known for wildlife. And it's just, um, I have to credit the birds with that. Yeah. I mean, most of all, I think they, they do keep me in the present moment and learn to appreciate that moment. Hmm. Just, you know, relieve a little bit of the stress. That's really beautiful. You know, as you were talking about these impacts, I was reminded of, you know, just kind of traditional nature writing and the words you use, like being present, finding stillness, noticing, being aware of my relationship with the other animal. These are all sorts of themes that you find in nature writing that happens like, you know, not in the city. 
And you're mm. articulating that these things are totally possible in the city and actually not that unusual, probably. So it is possible here. I mean, in the city, you think you can't possibly enjoy any quiet or you can't have a, a moment to yourself or enjoy any nature because there's so many people around, it's noisy, but there's always something. I mean, even, uh, you know, the house sparrows or the pigeons. <laughs> I mean, they're, uh, if, you, if you want easy access to birds, they're usually available, but just paying attention to them and just watching them interact is really, you know, ultimately calming and, and fascinating. Well, Laura, thank you so much for talking with us about your swan encounter and about this sort of year-long relationship with the hawks in Tompkins Square Park. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What is it about big birds? They can be powerful, beautiful, scary, awe-inspiring, secretive, and many other ways. Big birds make us take notice and help us remember that birds are descended from dinosaurs. For many people, a big bird is their spark bird. Big birds can be more visible to children, people with vision challenges, and are present in urban, suburban, and rural settings, making them especially accessible to many people. Next time you see a big bird, be it a raptor, vulture, goose, or gull, whatever it may be, Stop and appreciate the beauty, size, and power as you marvel at such a magnificent creature.